Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Julie, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm just so glad to see all of you, especially if you're new or visiting with us. Uh, we're just always so glad to have you. Uh, so we are in a series, we just started it recently, on the parables in Scripture. So we're calling it Jesus' Stories, Understanding the Kingdom. And with this series, we have been doing um, question and response after the sermon. And I have to start out with a bit of an apology from last week. So if you were here, uh, Joel was uh, preaching and he you know, gave a call for like, I'm going to leave a lot of space at the end because I know this is a tough topic and I really want to hear your questions. Um, and then I was sitting there watching, the, waiting for the questions to come in and I could see on our little website app that there are people on the website and I'm like, where, where are the questions? I'm confused as to like why I'm not seeing them come in. And so I kind of asked a few of my questions and then I got in the car to go home that day and all of them showed up in my email. <laughs> so I'm not sure what happened. We had a technical glitch. So if you did ask a question last week and you, um, we're hoping to get a response, I apologize. Joel actually did record a podcast responding to the questions from last week. So if you want to listen to that, um, you can find it wherever you listen to your podcasts or on our website. Um, and I did test it this morning, and it is working. So please send in your questions this week. I'm also going to leave some time. Um, so I hope that last week doesn't discourage you from uh, participating in this, because we really do want to be able to create space for dialogue. And uh, we call it question and response, because we don't always have the answers. And so we're just trying to, to do our best, along with you, uh, to understand what God is teaching us. And so. Uh, if you want to submit a question today, I really encourage you to do that. You can go to redcitychurch.org, and you can look for um, this logo on the, on the front page, and there's a little box for you to submit questions. So um, I am going to leave time at the end, so please uh, submit your questions as we go. Uh, so this week, our, our parable is one that's pretty famous even outside of the church. It's called the Good Samaritan. So I'm going to read the passage for us uh, and pray and if you want to follow along in your Bible or on your phone, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. All right, starting in verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Right? He's like, you're an expert in the law. You tell me. And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over, looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. 
The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was the neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. All right, I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can come together and to read your word and to hear your teachings. Uh, Lord, would you give us an open heart, an open mind, an open spirit to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Would you help us to be uh, challenged and encouraged by your word as we listen to you today? In your name, amen. All right, so did you know that the state of Minnesota actually has a Good Samaritan law? It's, a, it's called a duty to assist law. And it says, I'm reading this literally from the Minnesota website, a person at the scene of an emergency who knows that another person is exposed or has suffered grave physical harm shall to the extent that the person can do so without danger or peril to self or others give reasonable assistance to the exposed person. A person who violates the subdivision, so someone who does not help someone who is clearly in physical harm, is a guilty of a party misdemeanor, or a petty misdemeanor, sorry. So we actually have a law based, right, named after this parable in this state that says you are required to help someone if you see that someone is in physical harm. But the interesting thing about this parable Jesus is teaching is that it's not just a story that's meant to tell you to be a good citizen and to help those in need. It does tell us that, but remember, parables aren't just meant to be tales about morality, right? They're not just meant to teach us how to be good people. They're also stories that teach us about the kingdom of God. They teach us what it is like uh, to be followers of Jesus and to live in that kingdom. And in this instance, Jesus isn't just giving a vague call to love your neighbor. He's specifically calling people to love their neighbor, even when that neighbor is someone that you don't want to love. So let's look back at the passage. Let's, let's walk through it and see uh, how this all plays out. So the lawyer asks Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you're the expert in the law. You tell me. He loves your response to questions with more questions. I'm sure that would have been maddening if you were trying to have a conversation with Jesus. And so the lawyer says, well, Scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is actually from the Old Testament. So it's from uh, the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. These were laws that were part of the Jewish faith that everyone was called to follow. And Jesus says, yep, you're right, you know the law. So at this point, you're sort of like, okay, why did he ask the question if he already knew the answer? Kind of strange. And then we see why. In the next verse, he says, that it says the man wanted to justify his actions. So that's why he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So why would he want to justify his actions? We kind of have to see that he's, he must be asking the question of sort of like, how much do I have to do in order to get by, right? Maybe if you're a student, it's like, what's the minimum amount of effort I have to put in in order to get an A or in order to pass or whatever it is, right? We all kind of have moments where we're like, what's the bare minimum I can do here in this situation and still get by? And it seems that that's sort of what this man is asking, 
He's saying, I can't po- you can't possibly expect me to love everybody. So who are the people that I don't have to love? Who are the people who can be excluded from this law? And Jesus responds to this question by telling the man a story. And let me just tell you that if, you, uh, if you're asking Jesus a question and he responds to you with a story, it's not going to end well for you, right? This is, a, this is Jesus' move when he's about ready to kind of turn everything that you believe on its head. So Jesus tells him this story about a man who's been attacked and left half dead on the side of the road, and there's a priest and a temple assistant who walk by and leave him there. Kind of sounds like the intro of a bad joke, right? Like a temple and a, a temple assistant and a priest walk into a bar. Uh, and these men are religious men. So everyone who would know the law, or who would be kind of considered these high positions in religious society, would know the laws to love your neighbor. And so in the story, it should be these men, these Jewish men who know the Jewish law, who would take the time to stop and love their neighbor. And yet, they're the ones who walk on by. And then Jesus drops a real bomb in the story. A Samaritan walks by and decides to help. Now, I know this might not feel like a big like mic drop moment for us, but for the Jewish people living in Jesus' time, this would have been unthinkable because they hated the Samaritans. They had a fierce conflict with them about pretty much everything you can disagree on. Politics, culture, the way they lived out their religion, they disagreed over all of it. And this was not like a civil, agree-to-disagree kind of disagreement. They hated the Samaritans. They truly viewed them as the enemy. So for Jesus to tell this story and paint the Samaritan of all people as the hero of the story would have been unthinkable to this lawyer and any Jewish people who are listening. When, he, when the lawyer asked, you know, who's my neighbor? Who do I not have to love? In his mind, some of the people he didn't want to love were probably the Samaritans. And so Jesus picks up on that and really kind of drops the mic in this story. And you can even see the disgust that the lawyer has when Jesus finishes the story. You know, he asks, which one of these was the neighbor? And the the man replies, he doesn't even want to say the Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to use the, the name of them. He says, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus says, yeah, and now go be like them. Be like the the person that you consider your enemy in this story. Now, I wanted to take a quick little sidebar here, just because I know um, last week, one of the questions that came in after the fact, after the service, was about how do you know these, like, cultural pieces? Because a lot of times these parables and other pieces of Scripture make a lot more sense to us when we can understand the culture of the people who are living it and when it was written. And so I just want to throw out there, one easy way to kind of get at some of this would be to get a study Bible. So if you don't have one, um, I'd recommend that you kind of look into getting one of those. Or if you want one and you don't have the ability to get one on your own, come to us. We'd love to, we have some, we'd love to share one with you. Um, But it's just an easy way to kind of you know, check in, see if you can get some of that historical context while you're reading scripture. So in case you missed the questions last week and you haven't had a chance to listen to the podcast, I just wanted to throw that in. Okay, so to summarize, 
when, what the lawyer wants to know, he wants to know, who do I not have to love? Who can I exclude from being my neighbor? And Jesus' reply with this parable is that no one, not even your enemies, there are no boundaries around who is considered your neighbor in the kingdom of God. We're called to love everyone, no matter their race, their gender, how much money they make, who they vote for, what they believe, it doesn't matter. There are no boundaries around who is considered your neighbor in the kingdom of God. If you have an opportunity to love them, then they are your neighbor, because there are no boundaries around who would be considered your neighbor in the kingdom of God. And now some of you, maybe the more honest of us, uh, might be thinking of people that you would like to exclude from this list of people you have to love. Maybe people who have hurt you, maybe people who vote differently than you, or people who believe different things about Christianity than you. But others of us, maybe who are less honest with ourselves, because I think if we're really honest, all of us have people who would be on that list for ourselves. But some of us, I think, would like to think, well, I don't hate anyone. I don't have anyone that I would consider my enemy the way that the Jewish people might consider Samaritans their enemy. Right? Hate is such a strong word. Like, I'm, I'm not, I don't buy into that, right? I'm, I'm, I'm woke. I know that racism and sexism and all that stuff is bad. I've, I've moved beyond that. But I just want to challenge us this morning because sometimes apathy toward our neighbor can be just as bad as hating them actively. Right? When you think about it, you think like, I was thinking of a TV show I had watched recently where, you know, someone comes to the other person and they're like, I'm, I hate you and here are all the reasons why and I'm so mad and I want to get revenge and whatever. Another person just says, really? Because I don't think about you at all. And which one is worse? <laughs> which one feels like a bigger knife, right? It's, it's the apathy. For someone to say, I don't even consider you. <laughs> you don't ever even cross my mind. It's not even something I think about ever. It feels even worse than actively hating someone. And I think that's where many of us live when it comes to loving our neighbor. It's not that we hate people or that we're intentionally trying to exclude them from our list of people we have to love, but we just don't even think of them. We treat them and their problems as if they don't even exist because we're so wrapped up in our own worlds that we don't even take notice of the needs of the people around us in our lives. And if we truly want to love our neighbor, knowing that there are no boundaries around who our neighbor is in the kingdom of God, then we need to start caring about our neighbors, even the ones that we don't like or that are hard to love or that maybe we just choose to not think about. And I do think that this parable gives us a bit of a roadmap in terms of thinking about how we can start to take steps to loving our neighbor. In this parable, we see that loving our neighbor means seeing them, it means showing compassion to them and sacrificing for them. So I want to start with seeing our neighbors. Both the priest and the temple assistant, they saw the man as they walked by, but they passed by on the other side. So they saw the man, but they didn't really see him. You know what I mean? There's a difference. Right? Here's a, a really tiny example of that. Maybe someone, uh, your coworker, you sent them an email with like details about this project that you're working on, and then you get to work the next day, and they clearly did not read the email. Right? Like nothing has been included that you talked about, and you might say, 
didn't you see my email? And they might respond, yeah, I saw your email. But clearly they didn't actually like see the email. They didn't read it. They didn't internalize it and do something about it. It's a super small example, right? But there's a difference between just seeing something as you're passing by and actually truly seeing someone and getting to know them and being present with them. We need to be able to see our neighbors in depth. Instead of just being in passing, we need to be present with them to really get to know them and to hear their needs. Now, this summer at our retreat, uh, one of our members, Katie Heen, she led us in a breakout session where we made kits for our neighbors who are living in the streets, who are experiencing homelessness. And one of the main points that she talked about that has really stuck with me is how, you know, the biggest thing we're doing is not like meeting a physical need. That's great. Handing out these kits, that's great. But the biggest thing we can do for people is to really sit down and see them, to make eye contact, to acknowledge that they are made in the image of God, that they have worth and they have dignity. And when we you know, can actually interact with them, get to know them, maybe ask their name, share our name in return, we can actually see people, not just for their circumstances, but see them as image bearers of God. And I think this applies not only to our interactions with the unhoused, but it applies to every other neighbor in our life, especially the people who are different from us or who maybe we struggle with. They are worthy to be seen just as much as every other neighbor in our life. Because remember, there are no boundaries around who's considered our neighbor. Now, the passage doesn't tell us why the priest and the temple assistant pass by on the other side. Could be that they're afraid of also getting mugged. Could be that they were busy and they didn't feel like they had the time. Could be anything. Passage doesn't tell us. But when I think about my own life and I think about our culture now, I think about how busy we often are. And I think that's one of the big reasons that we often don't take the time to truly see the other people around us. We have things to do. We have our own problems to deal with. We have our own family and friends to take care of feels like we don't have time to stop and help the other people in our lives. So I'll add another uh, S word to our little seeing, showing, compassion, sacrificing, the little pastor trick. Uh, and I'll say we also need to slow down. We need to be moving at a pace where we can actually have the capacity to see people as made in the image of God. Because we won't really see people if we're so scheduled that we don't have any margin in our life, we don't have any time to, to stop and listen and get to know the people around us. Or we'll only see the people that we choose to see. If we're so scheduled, we know, I'm going to see these people and these people and these people this week, but because of that, that means I have no margin in my life to check in or to get to know the other people in my sphere of influence. When really, I think a lot of the people around us, if we just gave us them their, our presence and our time, could really make a, a big show of love to them in their lives. So think about this. Think about the people in your life. Maybe it's that coworker or classmate that you find really annoying for whatever reason. What if instead of just complaining about them or gossiping about them to your other friends, what if you took them out to lunch? What if you got to know them a little bit better? You saw them as a real person with true needs. Maybe you could see behind what's the reason why some of these things that they do that annoy you. 
Or maybe it's that neighbor that has a yard sign for a political candidate that you really don't like. What if when you're on your walk next time, you didn't have your headphones in, you took those out, and you actually made space to stop and talk to them, get to know them a little bit, see beyond what you maybe see just in their front yard? Or that person on the corner of the street that you always pass, what if you slowed down from your to-do list long enough to actually say hello, to ask them their name, to get to know them a little bit? As I was preparing for this message, um, one of the commentaries I read, I loved how honest they, they were. They just said, this parable is annoying <laughs> because it will not let us avert our eyes. Right? It doesn't let us say, I'm too busy, I've got other stuff going on, I don't have capacity for that. It does not let us avert our eyes. It does, not let us stop. it does not let us skip seeing people for who they really are. We can't just look away. God calls us to love them, to move past our initial assumptions or biases of people, and to see them all as people with worth and dignity made in the image of God. All right, the second thing, showing compassion to our neighbors. So we see in the parable in verses 33 and 34 that when the Samaritan saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. So the Samaritan felt compassion for the man who had been attacked. Some translations, if you're reading another one, might say that he had pity for the man. So I looked up the actual definition of the word, to have compassion, and in the Greek, it might seem a little strange to us, but it's to be moved in one's bowels, to be moved with compassion. And the reason why is that they thought the bowels were like the place where love uh, and pity came from. <laughs> so in our culture, we might say to be moved in one's heart, right? We tend to think of our heart as where that comes from. I'm not sure why they thought it was their bowels, um, but I'm kind of glad we have made a shift there because to be moved in one's heart just feels a little bit uh, better for me. But it, it does paint a picture, right? Like you're physically moved. You see someone and you get to know them, you see their need, and it so impacts you that you can feel it in your bowels, a big deal. And it's actually the same phrase that often gets used to describe how Jesus responds to people in his ministry. So just give you a few other examples of places this shows up. In Matthew 9:36 it says, "When Jesus saw the crowds of people, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd." And then later in Matthew 14, 14, it says, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And then also, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 in Matthew 15, he says, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry, uh, or they may collapse on the way. So we see that it's not just a feeling, like, a, you know, oh, I feel for them, oh, I feel empathy. It's actually something that feels so deep that it moves us to action. We feel compassion, but we also show that compassion. You see, the Samaritan does that as he shows compassion to the man by tending to his wounds. And you see in all these examples of Jesus that he shows compassion by healing the sick, by providing food, by caring for the people. He doesn't uh, start by asking, well, you know, what was this man into that he managed to get himself mugged? 
Or if I help him, what kind of life is he going to go back to living once he's healed? He doesn't condition his compassion for the man based on the man's actions or behaviors. He just sees the man as someone made in God's image who has been attacked and needs help. And he's moved to show compassion in his actions. He's moved to show compassion to help the man in the same way that we are called to see people and to show compassion to them. All right, so he sees the man, he shows compassion, and then lastly, he sacrifices for him. We see that the Samaritan made many sacrifices to care for this man that he didn't know. He takes time out of his day to stop whatever he's doing and to help the man. He uses his own wine, his own oil, his own bandages to take care of the man's wounds. And then he spends his own money to give the man shelter for two weeks and offers to pay more if needed. And beyond that, there are unseen sacrifices that this man makes. He stops to help the man in the same place where the man was attacked, which means it was likely a dangerous area. If the man was attacked there, it's probably a place that was maybe dark or maybe just uh, often thought of as a place where things like that could happen. And he takes the risk of personal injury to himself to help this man who has been attacked. He also enters into an ongoing financial relationship with an innkeeper. And innkeepers at that time were considered very untrustworthy. They were thought of as people who would rip you off. They were not people you should trust, and it was a big financial risk for this man to say, not only will I pay for two weeks of lodging for this man, but if the bill goes higher, I'll pay for it. Knowing that the innkeeper could say that the bill had gone higher, even if it hadn't, and rip him off, but he says, I will do that. I will pay for him. So is the Samaritan stupid for doing these things? Was he unwise by taking the time to stop in a, an unsafe area or to enter into this kind of uh, risky financial relationship with the innkeeper? It's not how it's presented in this story. In fact, he's presented as the hero of the story because he knows that in order to love his neighbor, he's going to have to make sacrifices. Now, what do we do with this? I think this is the, probably the hardest part of this, the most challenging part of this parable to apply to our own lives. And as I sat with the passage this week, I couldn't get around the fact that if we really want to love our neighbors, we're likely going to get taken advantage of sometimes. And I know that's uncomfortable, but I really can't see any other way around it. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and intentionally put yourself in harm's way or intentionally be taken advantage of. When Jesus sends out his disciples, he tells them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So be smart about it, right? I'm not telling you to go and do something uh, that will intentionally put you in harm's way. But I also don't want us to be so careful in our lives that we never put ourselves in situations where we sacrifice for other people. Because honestly, that's part of what sacrifice is. You're giving something up for someone else without any expectation of it being reciprocated. And our relationships with the people that we are trying to show compassion to are not always going to be an equal give and take. You aren't always going to get something in return 
for sacrificing for someone else. The Samaritan didn't help the guy because he thought he was going to get something out of it. He wasn't like a, hey, I'll help you out if, you know, later on you can, you know, do something for me. And yet he knew that the man was still made in the image of God and still worth the sacrifice. And truly, this is how Jesus treats us. One of the things that amazes me about the parables is that at this point in the story, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross, he hasn't done any of those things, and yet so much of the stories foreshadow what he will do, the ultimate sacrifice that he is going to make. Jesus sees us with all our strengths and all our weaknesses, and even though we don't deserve it, he takes the time to truly see us with dignity and worth and as if we are made in the image of God. He shows compassion to us in the way he moves toward us even when we aren't moving toward him. Even though the relationship isn't equal, he moves towards us and ultimately he makes the greatest sacrifice that anyone can make. He gives up his life and in his death he takes on the consequences of our sin so that we can receive salvation and new life in him. Jesus really is the one who shows us what it looks like to love our neighbor in the way that he shows love to us. And it's only when we understand the depths of God's love for us, as shown in Jesus, that we can even attempt to love our neighbor. Which is the last thing I, I, last point I really want us to, to walk away with, is that radical love of neighbor has to come from understanding God's radical love for us. So when the lawyer asks at the beginning of the parable, how can I inherit eternal life? The law says, love the Lord your God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. But the truth is, I think we all feel this and know this, we can't do that on our own. We try, but we're broken and we're sinful and we're going to make mistakes. All of us, just like the lawyer, are going to put boundaries around who we want to love and who we want to consider as our neighbor. We all look at people and think, yep, I'll love anybody except for them. But that's the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Because what he has done when we believe in him, we're united with him and his perfect love, his perfect love of neighbor covers all of our mistakes. All the times that we have been unloving to those in our life. And it's through Jesus and the way that he sees us and he shows compassion for us and he sacrifices for us that we can inherit eternal life. But just because our eternal life is secure in Jesus doesn't mean that there's not still a call on us in this life to love our neighbor. We are still called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we understand the radical love of God that he has shown to us through the cross and through the resurrection, it gives us a desire to actually love our neighbor. We've been given so much love and so much grace and so much mercy that when we reflect on that and when we remember it and really take it to heart, it overflows into the rest of our life. It overflows into love of the people around us, the love to all of our neighbors. And if we ignore this command to love our neighbor, we're really showing that we don't understand God's love for us. We're kind of spitting in the face of what God has done for us when we say, yeah, that's great that you did that for me, but, you know, I, I'll pass, right? I'm going to keep my boundaries around who I really have to love. Because when we really understand God's love for us, 
it should overflow out of our life into love for others. We can't walk away unchanged when we really experience God's radical love, and it should come out into our radical love for neighbor. So before I let you ask me some questions, I want to ask you a question uh, that I want you to continue to reflect on throughout the rest of our time together. Who in your sphere of influence uh, might God be calling you to see, to show compassion to, and to sacrifice for? I want you to really listen to God this morning. Who might that be in your life that God is calling you to love radically as your neighbor? And if the person coming to your mind right now is someone that you don't really like or someone that you find really challenging to love, then I'm going to guess that that's probably, that like gives me even more confidence that God's probably speaking to you. Because that's what he does in this parable. He encourages us and challenges us to love even the people who are difficult, the extra grace required people, the people who we just really struggle to engage with and to love well. He says, look, I'm giving you my radical love. I want this to transform you in such a way that it can overflow into your love of neighbor, even the ones that are challenging to love. So I want us to think about this question today um, as we move into our time of uh, worship and communion. But before we do that, as you know, I asked you a question, I do want to give a chance for uh, you to ask me some questions as well. So any questions today? Yeah, we do. Um, so I had the first one here. We actually had multiple questions come in about this. And you kind of touched, you started to touch on it, I think, here in a little bit at the end. But I think it'd be maybe develop it a little bit more. Um, there's... Uh, limitless neighbors. There's so many people in the world who, you know, we could see laying on the side of the road. Um, but, you know, we're limited in our capacity to care for them. Mm -hmm. How do you know which neighbors to focus on to love? And then I have a follow-up question after you respond to that one. Okay. Yeah, it's a great question, right? And I think it's one that we're all going to have to wrestle with. And so my first response would just be, I encourage you to listen to God. Spend some time in prayer and spend some time in quiet, just listening to him and asking the Holy Spirit to help you know, help guide you and direct you as to know which of those people to pour into and to show love to. Um, because you're right, we are limited. And I think especially in the world we live in now where we're hyper-connected to everyone and everything, uh, we could easily feel like I have to take on all of the causes and all of the people and you know, try to do everything I can for everyone. And I don't think God's called us to do that. Uh, I think he has called us to listen to him to see who he might be putting in your life. Um, one of the commentaries I read this week defined neighbor as someone who uh, has need and is nearby. So you can think about it that way too. Who are the people in your life who are nearby to you, who you might interact with frequently, who have that need that you can step into and, and to love? All right, and then assuming you are willing to, you know, take that on, you know, not just in like a small way, but really like live this out in a radical way like you're talking about, how do you do it in a way where you don't burn out? Yeah, it's such a good question. Burnout is so common and really challenging, I think, when we want to live radically like this. Um, and I'll, again, I'll, I'll start by saying that if you don't understand that radical love, if you're not returning to that radical love of Jesus regularly, you are going to burn out. 
because there's no way we can do this without God's love and power in our own lives. And so I'd start there, but then also I think, um, you know, again, asking God and, and listening about what's wise in your life and how you can use your time in a way that honors him and glorifies him. I think also listen to the Christian community around you. I think that can be a really helpful way, especially when we're like in deep in a relationship. Sometimes it's hard to know, um, yeah, where things, where the proper kind of lines should be in terms of what it looks like to be, to not be, to not burn out and to not be enabling or like enmeshed with someone. I think those are all real challenges. So I would say don't, Listen to God, like I said first, understand his love, and then second, rely on the Christian community around you. Don't try to do this alone. Um, first of all, no one person should try to do everything, right? If you can introduce the people that you're trying to love to more people, other Christian people in your life who can also love them, that can spread the load out a little bit. And also, they can be ones who speak into your life and say, hey, I'm noticing some things I think you need to reconsider or let's talk about how, you know, you can love them well and still uh, not burn out for yourself. Um, let's see here. Um, I think a lot of the, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but a lot of the people we could be called to love, um, they might be hurting people. They might be rebellious towards God and some sin. How do you love them without accepting their sin or maybe stating approval um, of the ways in which they're hurting people or the things that you disagree with? Um, mm -hmm. How do you love them without approving of, of those things? Yeah. And again, I, I would take our cues from Jesus in this. Uh, you know, we look at Jesus in the New Testament. He eats with sinners and hangs out. And sharing a meal was like a really intimate thing. So he hangs out with sinners all the time. And he doesn't say hey, before I can interact with you, you need to follow me and understand who God is and you know, change this in your life before we can be friends. But he moves towards them uh, in love. And over time, he might challenge people, right? He, you know, Jesus is a very honest, sometimes very blunt about certain things, uh, but he's never afraid to enter into a relationship with someone, even if they're in sin. It's not something he's afraid of taking on. Uh, and I think... Because we're united with Jesus, we can have that confidence that we're not going to like take on someone's sin or be associating with them is going to be bad for us because uh, you know we're afraid that of how it might look or something like that. Um, I think we can love people. We can be honest with them and have real conversations, not hide our our perspectives on things. But I don't think we need to be afraid of the the sin that they might be or the behaviors or things they're doing. Yeah, I th yeah, I think. Jesus usually tells people, he does not afraid to gain the sin on himself, but he tells people, go and sin no more after mm -hmm. he's done loving yeah. them. Yeah. So, yep. um, yeah, I think that's probably good. Cool. Thank you, guys. Those are great questions. Um, we're going to enter into our time of communion and worship. Uh, and so I encourage you again to reflect on the question about who God might be calling you to, uh, to love radically. Um, and then we invite you to, to uh, worship with us and to take communion. You don't have to be a member at Resurrection City to take communion. We just ask that you are a follower of Jesus. 
Um, and our communion is uh, right up here. You can come up and take it uh, and take it back to your seat, take, eat it, take it whenever. Uh, we won't be taking it all together at once. And if you are gluten-free, I just want to throw out there that there are gluten-free options up there. I know I am, so that's always a helpful reminder for me. So I'm going to pray for us, and we will head into that time of worship and response. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the radical love that you have shown us. The way is that even though we didn't deserve it, that we have no reason for you to see us, to show us compassion or to sacrifice for us, that you do it anyways. You love us so deeply. You're moved to compassion when you see us, that you were willing to even give up your life. We praise you for that. And we ask that as we reflect on that this morning, that you would change us, that you would move us to compassion, to show love to our neighbors and to those around us. In your name we pray. Amen.